Hello, welcome to the Humanities and Technologies podcast. This is our first ever podcast, and in it we're going to talk about the conjunction and intersection of humanities and technology, particularly as it relates to higher education, but also the broader world. My name is Dr. Randy Jasmine. I'm a professor of English here at Dixie State University, and my partner is another professor here. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jim Hindigas. I teach also in the English department here. Um, I teach within rhetoric and composition and a lot of professional and technical writing courses. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm your partner in I'm, this I'm, endeavor. <laughs> I'm glad you're here as well. And, and yeah, we, we, we do make kind of a complimentary team. Uh, my area of specialty is literature. Um, like you, I do teach composition as well but literature is the area that I focus on for upper division classes and um, other teaching responsibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by the English department here. We're located in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and in fact, much of what we're going to do with the promotion of our podcast and the extension of our podcast out into the wide world is going to be um, through the mechanisms that we have available to us through the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. So you'll be able to hear our podcast if you look on the CHAS uh, social media page. And also we're going to be plugging the radio station, asking the people on the radio station to play our podcast. And we'll maybe give you an update on that in future episodes of hey, you know, you can listen to it at, at this time on, on our radio station. So that's just the podcast in general. What is this podcast? <laughs> that's a really good question. This podcast is really an attempt to talk about what for us at this institution and for many people at many institutions of higher education is a, is, a, is a topic that is really, really important to the way universities are moving forward. Technology is such a big part of the way that we function in academia now. You know, I don't want to be the nostalgia guy. Um, that's hopefully not going to be my role in this podcast. But, you know, I've been doing this for, for 24 years and it's changed. You know, technology, when I started out, was a handful maybe of what we would call online courses that looked more like correspondence courses. Teachers were not utilizing technology in the classroom the way that they are now. And students were not accessing technology and resources the way that they are now. So this podcast is an attempt to try to understand how we can best integrate technology into our teaching, but also into our discipline, which most people would say, well, humanities and English, technology really doesn't connect to those disciplines. Does that make sense? That, that makes sense. And, and I think we even think about this fact that technology, you're right, is, is changing so much that, I mean, the, at one point, you and I both know that the, the book the novel was a technology and, and printing press was a technology. And now we're dealing with a lot of um, things that are plugged into the wall, things that have screens, technology that's tangible. And it, 
it is, um, it, it, you're right. It's changing the face of education. And as we'll talk about in this, um, this podcast, you know, sometimes there are moments when the humanities and what we focus on feels like it's outside of the techno technological movement. And, you know, we'd make the argument that it's, it's not, but <laughs> that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about is, are there oppositional forces and are there compatible forces that at work between humanities and technology? Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, when I think about it, I think there's kind of the basic level and the basic level is very important. It's certainly important in the everyday lives of our students. You know, most of our students now probably do not access their resources in the form of hardcover books for any class, right? In terms of textbooks and uh, works of literature in, in, in my class, uh, works of, of uh, uh, criticism as well. They access it via their laptop. They access it via their phones. They have all kinds of ways that they can get the information. You know, for example, I'm not the kind of teacher, and I know I have some colleagues who have tried to fight the, well, I don't want my students to listen to a text uh, via audiobook. I just think that's, that's not the same as reading it. And I've felt like that's something that could be beneficial. It can engage students maybe in a way that reading words on a page doesn't. But then my responsibility is to make sure that that becomes a productive um, technique for them within the class. Okay, you listen to it, but then you can't come to class and say, oh yeah, I really like that part where Jane Eyre says this to Rochester. I don't really remember where it is. And of course, since I wasn't looking at a book, I have no idea what the page number was or what chapter it was. You know, they still need to be focused, but if listening to a 450-page Victorian novel is going to get them more likely to um, be engaged with it, then that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, that that's a good, that's going to be a big struggle. It's just even educators, this idea of where does technology help? Where does it hurt? And the, the typical English major answer would be yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is, is both. That At times it can be a huge distraction and other times it really welcomes certain students into the content that they wouldn't, have been welcomed into it before. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, connected to this in terms of, you know, trends in humanities and technology, there's a very fast paced movement going on um, within our, our, our academic area called digital humanities. And, you know, there's some really interesting projects where people in the humanities are, coupling with people in computer science and looking at the way that the things that we consider to be text, the things that we consider to be literature, the things that we consider to be art are being produced and, and studying that. You know, I'm no expert on digital um, humanities. I have kind of dipped my toe into it a little bit. But, you know, for example, and I, I think this is really valuable, um, one of the, one of the, seminal works of literature in uh, digital humanities is, is called Distant Reading. And in that, um, Moretti makes the argument that if you have a canon of literature, meaning a small body of literature 
that only a very, very small body of literature that gets read by most people, you're really saying, you know, all this other stuff that was created just isn't important. We don't need to know anything about it. And he makes the argument for expanding the view. Now, none of us can read, you know, if I can't say to my students in a semester, well, normally I had you read five novels, but since I want to take a big picture approach, I want you to read a hundred novels this semester. That's not going to work. But what you can do with the technology that's out there, if you say, you know, in this particular Victorian novel, it seems like there's a shift from the characters using um, religious language to later on using more secular language. It looks like there's a shift. Well, instead of doing that with a novel or a a couple of novels by the same author or a couple of novels by contemporary authors, with the technology that we have, we can look at them all. We can look at all of the Victorian novels that were published in this particular time period. We can we can highlight words that we consider to be religious and we can highlight words that we consider to be words and phrases that we consider to be secular and we can chart the, the shift. And all of a sudden, if that shift from religious to secular happens over the span of 50 years in all the novels that are being produced in England, as opposed to two or three, there are a lot of critical possibilities that can come along with that. So that's some of the things that are that are that I see going on. Well, you're absolutely right. The, the access to information, the information boom, all all of this that can be stored on a small drive, um, what used to be in Library of Congress. You know, we you know the the fact that the library below us uh, is actually fairly small, and yet they're. The, the databases that they have access to, there's so much information that it really helps out our field. But as we'll also talk about it, it can have its um, its issues as well. You know, what, what I also see in the evolution of our department is, you know, and this can be a point of contention too, what, what the priorities are is that, you know, we, we are also exerting our value by making sure that we we are connected to professional and to, and technological emphasis, and um, with the new master's program, you know it's uh, digital rhetoric and professional writing. Um, it's this idea that um, we're trying to send people out into the workforce that are showing that they are strong communicators, they're English majors, but they're also working in technological fields. And so it's a big accomplishment in our, our master's program to have that. And, and that speaks directly to the trends that we're seeing that you know, we, we want to see um, those pursuing a graduate degree that also can straddle the line between humanities and technology. That's a great example. And, and the work that, that's going on in that master's program it not only demonstrates the, the connections that can be made, but as you point out, it shows the really, really practical employability skills that people can come out of that program with. You know, I'll probably say this a lot on this podcast. You know, it, it angers me that English is looked upon as being this kind of uh, elite esoteric major that when you come out, you just don't get a job. I mean, we do great with job placement and graduate school placement. 
And we will always will because employers will always be looking for people who can write well and have critical thinking skills. And so those things maybe aren't necessarily the, the substance of our major, but they're the tools that we are always instructing our students on. Um, we send students to law school. We send students to jobs writing, not writing novels, not writing critical essays, but writing very practical things, writing um, in the professions that I think is, is really significant. And, and our master's program is going to help us to continue to do that. I think that's something that's, that's really significant. Um, let me ask you this question. This all sounds great, but why are we doing this? Why, why do we need to make this argument? Or maybe, not, maybe, that, maybe I'm jumping the gun there. Why do we need to have this kind of discussion? Maybe people can just it's, say it's self-evident. Why do we need to have this discussion? Well, it's self-evident to us. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and, and that's the thing that, that we'll constantly be talking about is this um, with a constant need to defend uh, and the value of, of what we're doing. And um, I mean, it can get really exhausting in, in certain fields. And I mean, I, I think everybody in academia might think, well, I need to defend myself and defend my, my field and my profession. But the reality is it's not quite true. You know, certain fields, they just have an inherent value that they don't have to stick up for. Um, and it's for whatever reason, whether it's um, job placement, whether um, and and I, I guess we would also, to your point last, I, I would say it's true that English majors do get jobs. Um, I think the issue becomes that they don't go into one or two specific areas. We'll get pigeonholed as, as going into education quite, quite often. But, I mean, you, you find English majors in all sorts of fields. And when you get somebody who's going into nursing, there's a good chance they're going into nursing. <laughs> and so that that's why people often will, will see that. And why do I need to defend my, my the field of nursing? You're, we're, go, we're sending nurses into the nursing field. Um, with us, we're, we're sending communicators out into the world and critical thinkers out into the world. So, but we, we do, we, we, need to, we need to defend it. And we also need to, uh, it's funny, we, we as teachers are always compelling students to defend themselves. Um, especially in humanities, find sources, defend yourself, come up with a compelling argument. And in some ways, we have to demonstrate it ourselves for our field. We need to come up with a, a compelling argument and we need to bring up source material. That's a great point. And it does very strongly connect with a lot of the requirements that we put on our students. So I think that, you know, we've started to identify the, the people who would care about this particular conversation. Um, the people who would want to see the humanities do a better job defending themselves, publicizing themselves. That's another thing I often hear. You, you folks in the humanities, you just don't publicize yourself well enough. And so maybe maybe this is that's the, the goal of this podcast, right, to publicize ourselves a little bit more. But I think about, you know, the majors and the people who are students in this field um, whether it be philosophy or history or um, English, you know, we're talking humanities, but I said at the beginning, we're in the school of, of, of uh, humanities and social sciences. Social sciences find themselves in this 
boat to some extent. But like you say, the level to which people have to justify themselves definitely vary. And we feel that way. But, you know, going back to my comment about employability, we hear that all the time from employers. We always want people who can write. We always want new employees who know how to write, who know how to, like you say, make an argument and then defend that argument. So in a lot of ways, I think that's um, significant. You know, and, and as we're talking about it, and as you and I were discussing this before the show, um, it kind of popped into my mind that I think something like English has always been primarily a discovery major that people who come to college and know they're going to study English and know that they're going to go into a field that's related to English, probably that percentage of students is lower than the ones who say, I'm going there to be an accountant, nothing against accounting, but a student gets there and they find out it's just not for me, don't want to do it, looks around and says, well, what else could I major in? All of a sudden, hey, I kind of like my English classes. Hey, in my composition classes, we engaged with some issues that I found really interesting. I've always liked, you know, writing, maybe I'll go into English. And I think that for those students, we also want to have a very clear um, explanation and a very clear presence in terms of what it is that our programs are all about. So when that person starts searching, starts looking around, they find this and say, hey, these these folks seem to be very... Um, keen on uh, recruiting people. These folks seem to be pretty sure that I might be able to get a job when I get out of here. Maybe this is the major that I want to go into. Well, it's, tr it's true. I mean, if we just sit here and just hand students books and say, read this and write a paper, okay, what am I going to do when I graduate? I don't know. Don't worry about it. Read this <laughs> and write a paper. It, that's not going to help our students feel very confident about their decision. And so it is, it, it is up to us. And, and in some ways, I mean, it, it is a little annoying that we, we have to defend ourselves constantly, but it's also, it, it is valuable. And I think it's a good exercise that we can go through. Yeah. And speaking of defending ourselves, we have to defend ourselves. I think we've talked a little bit here already about defending ourselves from external attacks, but we also have to defend ourselves sometimes from internal attacks. And you shared with me a uh, article from the Chronicle of Higher Education from just, uh, I believe it was yesterday, in defense of disinterested knowledge. And in that article, the author talks about how the people in the humanities who are doing research that isn't considered socially and civically engaged are finding themselves coming under more and more scrutiny that if you are going to do research, and that's always been an issue in our field, right? What, what's the value of the research that we do? If I write a book on Milton and Paradise Lost, how valuable is that to society as a whole? That question has always been there. But now that's been intensified by our colleagues who do great things with social justice and um, civic engagement and fighting for um, equality amongst underrepresented populations. And if your research doesn't fit into that category, if like me, you want to write an article about George Gissing or Philip Larkin or Edith Wharton, what, what, what value does that have? And this article suggests there is value there. There is, um, there is value in this disinterested knowledge and we shouldn't be adding 
pressure to people to say, it's not solving the world's problem, so it's not worth doing. When it, I think it gets at one of the larger issues, yes, internally and then also externally, that it only matters if you are, I guess we'll throw the word, if it's within the zeitgeist. <laughs> it only matters if you um, are capturing something that is incredibly relevant to now. And to me, it almost seems contrary to innovation. I mean, we talk about innovation all the time, and yet it's a push to say, you know what, it's only really important if you're discussing what everybody else is discussing. If you choose to focus on something outside, then... And so how do you how do you become innovative in your research if you're always just mimicking what's going on right now and you feel confined? And and I, I think we, we feel that way in our field and we also feel that way in the sense that if we're not steering the ship, if if a focus on technology, if uh, STEM fields, if, uh, if if they're dictating the conversation and that we only really should be having conversations about these particular topics, it um, it really kind of inhibits us and it, it, it's, it, it puts us in our place, which we try to get out of. <laughs> we don't want to be in that sort of minor category. We want to have an equitable voice within the academics. I think that's exactly right. And I think that most of us do approach literature or excuse me, do approach uh, research in a way that we see connections to things that are significant to us, even if it's not directly applicable, right? I mean, you can't spend your career reading and writing about Charles Dickens and not come across issues that have to do with equality, issues that have to do with the problems of poverty, issues that have to do with um, the problems of a rigid hierarchical class structure. So, you know, if you're going at it in an honest way, I think you're going to make some connections to contemporary issues. And like you say, you want to be innovative. You want to come up with a new line of thinking, a new line of inquiry that maybe people haven't been pursuing, people haven't been looking into. And I think that's um, really important. You brought up the STEM folks. And in this article, the author says, you know, the STEM folks don't ask these questions of themselves. They just don't, because like you said earlier, when you were talking about employment, it's pretty self-evident what it is that they're doing research for in their fields if there's a, a, a wildly practical realm to, a wildly practical aspect to their field. Yes, we're researching cancer, we're researching a cure for cancer. That, that's self-evident in and of itself, right? And so I think that's, that's significant. We have to be we have to be conscious of not engaging in what we might call the navel-gazing research where we just want to be an expert on this obscure author and we don't think that there's any connection to anyone. But at the same time, we don't have to feel like, like I said, the next article we write is going to solve all the world's problems. One, we are... Another reason why we're doing this uh, uh, this podcast is we are in a very unique situation <laughs> with our university. I never thought that I, um, what, 11 years in an institution, would I think that such a 
major shift and you've been here longer than me, such a major shift in identity. And, um, I mean, and we're in the midst of a name change too. possibly, I don't know what's going on. I don't want to touch that, but this idea that our, our identity change has moved away from, you know, we were a community college. You were here when this was a community college, right? No, I got, I got here a little bit after that. Um, when I got here, we had just switched and we were offering five baccalaureate degrees. So you were at the, the emergence of a, you were becoming a state college. And, right. And then, right. you know, the, the, now we're a university and there's a big focus uh, and, and there's a lot of momentum moving towards health sciences. And, and there's also a lot behind that for STEM fields and tech base, um, just sending students to more tech based, um, employment. And, and I mean, I, that wasn't the identity that this place had before. And now that's where we're at for various reasons. And so that also pushes this conversation to the forefront. Uh, you know, there's a, uh, and, and there's a lot of risk and reward that that's involved with that. Um, did you want to share the mission statement of this universe? This the new one. Sure, sure. Like you, um, I will reiterate: we're not here to discuss the name change and our views on that. But there is a new mission statement. Whether there's going to be a name change or not, there is a new mission statement, and it reads this way: Dixie State University is an open, inclusive, comprehensive polytechnic university featuring active and applied learning to advance students' knowledge and skills while fostering competent, resilient, lifelong learners to succeed in their careers and personal lives as creators, innovators, and responsible citizens. All right. (laughs) (laughs) The first thing I always say to people when they read that or when I read that to them is, we're going to be pioneers if we can connect particularly open, inclusive, and polytechnic. That's really going to be the challenge. And I think it's a challenge that's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Um, We know what polytechnic means. We've talked about it already, this this, this turn towards the fields that you just mentioned, STEM, health sciences, technology. But we have always been an open admissions institution. What that means is students do not, um, when, when they apply, um, if they've graduated from high school, they can get in. They have to take placement tests in areas, particularly in English and math. And if they're not up to what we consider to be a college level, they have to take um, developmental courses before they can start taking their college credit um, classes. But open access means everybody gets a shot at college. Inclusive means you're reaching out to traditionally underrepresented populations and trying to get them to say, hey, you know, college can change your life, take a shot at it. But then at the other end of this mission statement, you have polytechnic, which by its very definition means fields that are going to be selective. If you want to go into engineering, if you want to go into health sciences, nursing, if you want to go into biochemistry, those are going to be at the upper division level selective majors. There are going to be people and there are going to be people who try and fail. 
And so how do we, how do we then justify those two apparently opposite ends of the spectrum at a single institution? And I think the kinds of things that we're talking about, the way that we can connect and collaborate um, with few folks who are in the humanities, connecting and collaborating with folks who are involved in technology and STEM fields and health science fields, I think we're the ones who can try to answer that question. Yeah, and it it's a tall task. I mean, as long as I've been here, it's I've, I've always thought about this in terms of, okay, so when this was a community college and it had a community college mission, then in the open and inclusive wasn't much of a challenge that was sort of implied. Uh, and yet, as the place has grown, it's kept a hold of that open, inclusive um, title and keeps adding on to that, making that task even taller. You're right. We say you know, we want to, to bring in as many people as possible. We want to educate people. We want to empower people, which is very noble. But then you have these fields in which there must be a definite line. We can't just say, you know what? You can't do math, but we'll make you an engineer anyways. <laughs> uh, and so we, 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 it's a, it's a very chat. Uh, it's very challenging. And I, I think what is, is difficult is it, it could inspire people to really make st- great strides here, but it could also really challenge people to a breaking point to say, this isn't possible. And this is, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to leave. <laughs> I don't want to to work on this anymore. I want to go to a place where the identity is pretty streamlined and not such a tall task. So it, it, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. I'm excited about it. At the same time, I'm also fairly terrified if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah. I think that, uh, pretty accurately sums up the way I'm feeling. Um, just before we move on, I did want to point out one thing that I think there is a distinct difference between open and inclusive. I think for a long time we have been an open institution, which means no admission requirements. Inclusive, I think, is a little bit harder to do. And we haven't been so successful in reaching out to, I keep using this phrase, but it, it's important, underrepresented populations in the community around us. So you can be open access, but if you're not doing your best to reach out to these underrepresented populations, then my opinion is you're not really being inclusive. So I think that even right off the bat, those two that we sometimes link together, we want to make sure we, we realize there's a distinction between those two and that becomes a big challenge for us. Um, when I, when I um, interviewed for the job here and um, was taking a tour of campus, actually being guided around campus by a former president of the university and his words were um, open access colleges are the last bastion of true democracy and I thought I think he's exaggerating a little bit but the more that I've thought about it over the years I think there's some relevance to that you know this idea that everybody gets a shot everybody gets a chance to try and see if college is for them and um, a challenge for us will be to continue to make sure those resources for those underprepared students uh, are there, you know, because, you know, we talked about kind of the philosophical differences between those terms, but the practical differences between those terms is those polytechnic majors also 
tend to be very expensive and tend to utilize a lot of your resources. And you need to be sure that you don't take resources away from that other end where you have those courses where students can get the foundation that they need in things like English and math before they move on to those classes. And those, those can often be expensive um, resources as well. We're talking about tutors and, and uh, computer rooms and supplemental instruction and courses in which instructors teach more than the, the three credit hours um, that they usually teach for, for a college class. Those things cost money, and you know you hope that there's a balance maintained financially as well. And and I I maybe didn't reveal all the hats that I wear here. <laughs> uh, I, I yes I am primarily I'm I'm an associate professor of English here, but I I also serve um, on the first year experience um, uh, area <laughs> on campus. And uh, so I, I get to interact with a lot of first-year students, interact with a lot of staff that are, are working on retention. And these are, are factors that they're constantly facing is that students come here for different reasons, have different levels of preparation. And it, it's disheartening when you invite every student to, to come here but not everybody is able to hang on for the first few years. And, and I think that speaks to that idea that when you're trying, how inclusive are you being if you are opening the door for everybody, but you, you're sort of saying sink or swim, uh, you're not giving the resources that certain students need to succeed and get to the upper division level and to graduate. And, and so that's another part of that, that struggle, that challenge that we encounter is that, you know, being inclusive means that that you're you want to create an equitable equitable plane for students, and that is very challenging. You know, and as we're talking, it's just striking me that this is a a perfect example of the kind of of um, cooperation and cross curricular work that we can be doing here. That those people in discipline areas, maybe particularly the discipline areas that students identify as being the most um, sought after, are also thinking about, well, I want to know what's happening with these students when they're at these lower division classes. What are the kinds of things that we can do so that they can be successful, but also when they get to upper division, when it comes to whatever field or discipline it might be, do they have the kinds of skills that I'm hoping that they have? And and sometimes, you know, I just don't think, I think it's true of anybody in any discipline. You said earlier, we we kind of, the metaphor is we, we're in our silos. We're in our silos of our discipline and we don't see outside of it. You say, wow, I really hope those upper division students who start taking classes in my field are prepared, but how much do we think about what could I be doing to perhaps collaborate with someone in another field. Um, I have started a project in which I'm collaborating with some folks over in the social sciences, someone in psychology, someone in um, applied sociology, as well as someone in um, criminal justice to make my English 2010 composition course a little bit more geared towards the kinds of study that they do in those fields. I'll never be an expert in that field, but 
I can change my focus a little bit and try to collaborate with those folks so that those students who go on to those fields have the best start that they can to maybe be successful in them. Yeah, I, I think for a topic for another time will probably be, I know we're going to touch upon GE at some point and how <laughs> much course. humanities is involved with GE, but that's, I mean, they talk about this, uh, that the, the university talks about the necessity of GE in preparing students, um, and not just to find their major, but preparing them with certain skills to be able to go into the upper division. But then the, on the other side of the coin, sometimes it's just like, well, that, that darn GE, it's in the way. The students need to get to their upper division courses, but do they have the skills to be able to succeed in their upper division courses if they didn't go through those GE courses? So, yeah, let's uh, mark that down as a, yes. a as a let's talk about GE full so scale topic for a future podcast. GE. Okay, do you want to uh, read the vision statement, which is very similar, but a little bit more specific. Sure. Yeah, we're seeing some similar similar language. Dixie State University aspires to be a premier open, inclusive, comprehensive polytechnic university distinguished through an ethos of innovation in entrepreneurship and the achievement of exceptional student learning and success. So we're seeing uh, innovation and entrepreneurship in there, which like I was mentioning I sometimes have an issue with, but are, are we following certain scripts on what innovation and entrepreneurship look like, especially if certain fields are leading the, the charge on those? But that <laughs> I don't know if, if you want to go into that. Uh, I, I just, I, I think it's valuable. I just think it's also a part of our defense that we need to make sure that, that, that we are leading in the humanities and in, in areas of innovation and entrepreneurship instead of just following. Cause I, I mean, right off the top of my head, I mean, you can, you think about STEM and you also think um, about business as areas. I mean, they have business has entrepreneurial studies and uh, you know, I, I think those sort of partnerships where we need to be working with students, if they're going to be entering in, into businesses that we need to be, with those types of students that there should be a collaboration. I think there should be an English major attached to every business in my opinion. <laughs> that, that's a good point. And again, I think that goes to what we've talked about before in terms of the skills that they can pick up. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And, and I think that we have to be careful, you know, our main, what's the word I'm looking for? Motto is not the right word, but our main, kind of calling card uh, here is active learning, active life. And as you know, we've fought the struggle to, to say that thinking and writing and doing those kinds of activities in class is active learning. You know, you don't have to take your students on a field trip to make it active learning. You don't have to, you know, get up and demonstrate the Heimlich maneuver during class to make it active learning. There are a lot of things that go into that. And I think with with entrepreneurship and some of the other ideas that they talk about um, in that vision statement, we need to have as broad a definition of that as possible. And, you know, I, I would say at this point that most of the people, if not all of the people that I engage with on campus in different disciplines, when we talk about these things, 
I find them very open to the kinds of discussions that we have, but often it goes back to what we've mentioned here already a few times. They're not all that familiar with things that go on outside of their own discipline. And so, oh yeah, that could be entrepreneurship or, oh yeah, that, that could be active learning. I'd never really thought of it that way. And I think um, we need to continue to try to have as many of those discussions as possible. I agree. All right. In our remaining time, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the majors that are popular and some of the majors that are going to lead our students to really high paying jobs when they get out of college? Well, sure. I was pulling uh, some data points from U.S. News. And uh, I mean, I think this further reinforces what we're talking about, this this idea that you know, we have to defend the marketability of, of humanities degrees. And then you see studies like this in, in uh, 2018 mentioning college majors with great job prospects. Um, engineering's right up there at the top with business, computer science, data science, cognitive science. You're noticing a trend here. <laughs> uh, nursing pharmaceutical sciences, and then human resources. And if you look at that list, an, an English major um, or anybody really in the humanities would go, well, I guess I can go into human resources <laughs> because everything else seems like it wouldn't. Uh, I mean, I guess maybe you would go into business it, depending on your, your angle, but it sure seems like someone in the humanities wouldn't necessarily gravitate towards. Now, social scientists would probably disagree with that. I mean, I'm taking it so much from a, an English a professor standpoint, but it does when when a student reads this, and also when a faculty member reads this, they they sure feel like they need to speak up in the humanities and say, "Oh well, how do we fit into this graph? Um, we want to be at those in those majors with job prospects." And if I could even mention um, further, a recent uh, study with talking about the the best starting salaries from U.S. News. Um, we've got applied mathematics, physics, and a whole bunch of engineering then after that. Uh, biomedical engineering, mechanical engineering, industrial engineering, materials engineering, aerospace and aeronautical engineering, electrical engineering, computer engineering, and chemical engineering. And and that, that wage range for uh, a starting... Uh, a, a graduate, a recent graduate, I mean, an applied mathematics, um, a student would be entering to 67,000. And if, if you go all the way up there on that scale, uh, someone going into chemical engineering would be making 75,000 starting. And that's, that's a, those are really good starting wages for a student. So why would they go into, I don't have the numbers here, but I know a teacher would be making a significantly less amount of money. A K through 12 teacher would be making probably about, I'm not probably exaggerating, but about half that amount of money. And, and so when, when a student looks at those, they say, these are the best majors. These are the, um, this is the money that I would get. It, it sure becomes a deterrent to say, why would I go into humanities if I'm not in the right job and I'm not going to get paid? And we haven't even broached the subject of what those jobs entail, which I always tell the students, do you want to go into aerospace and aeronautical engineering? <laughs> because you might not want to if that's not your skill set. But 
you know, that that's what we're also contending against is this sort of popular knowledge that, you know, this is where we need to put our focus in because this is where the, this is where the jobs are at. Um, this is where the money's at. And that's a great point. I think that a lot of high school students coming into college and even non-traditional students returning to college may be more influenced by those kinds of numbers and those kinds of statistics than than they really want to be. Just like you said, um, they may say, I'm obviously going to go into this field because look at the numbers, look at the look at the amount of money I could be making right out of right out of college if I do that. But then they find out that that's not really for them. And then, like I said, that's a potential for a discovery major. But I think there's also a lot of pressure and I think it's, it's well-intentioned. But this idea that the last thing you want to do is change your major, because guess what? You will have taken courses you don't really need. You're going to have to borrow more money. You're going to be more in debt when you get out. So don't ever change your major. And I think that connects to, and this will, will be brought up with when we do do our GE podcast, that the exploration element of general education programs and, and colleges and universities is often downplayed and, almost, and also argued to be eliminated. And, you know, like I said, that's well-intentioned. You don't want students leaving with a lot of debt. You don't want them to be paying st- student loans for the, for, you know, the next 25 years. But at the same time, I think we need to get to a place where we can make a pretty solid claim to particularly someone who's in their first or second year of college. Changing your major is not a failure. There's nothing involved with, you know, there's nothing that makes that a failure. You're, you're finding what best suits you. And maybe, you know, all the money in the world isn't going to suit you as you, like you say, as you know, you're just not going to make it as an aerospace engineer. You're just not interested in that. It's just not what you want to do. And I think that if we go back to those two words, you know, open and accessible on our mission statement, if that's what we're going to be, then we need to be stressing that exploratory element of our education here as well. And that could be another topic as well changing majors because we we often i mean in the humanities and we we don't get a lot of students who are declaring uh, and entering college and declaring in the humanities i mean we do we get our share but not as many as a lot of the other fields on campus but we do get a lot of transfers we do get people that that realize that you know they they were intrigued by the possibilities of certain fields but they find that they wouldn't they don't want to function in those fields that they would rather function in, in the humanities. And, and so we, we should, at some point that might be a good topic too, is talking about transfer and, and the idea that what happens when somebody wants to be an engineer um, or anywhere in, in any of the sciences or even business. And they decide, no, I, I want to be, I want to go into psychology. I want to go into English. I want to go into, any field in, in the humanities. Absolutely. Well, this has been a great discussion, and um, I hope it's been interesting to the folks who are listening. Uh, Jim, you want to tell us what's coming up in the future? Oh, yes. We've got a treat for you. Um, hopefully he says yes. <laughs> um, I think it was as he agreed. Uh, Tentatively, he oh, has okay. agreed. All right, well, we're, 
We're going to invite uh, Dr. John Wolf. Um, he teaches philosophy courses here. He delivered a wonderful address at the beginning of the semester uh, about these sort of topics. And he also swore a little bit. It was pretty exciting. <laughs> I, I don't know if we need to put an explicit warning on this podcast if he swears again, but uh, we're going to invite him as we talk about these subjects. I mean, he's got a lot to say about um, the direction of the university, the um, polytechnic focus, the uh, all of the topics that we do, we we encountered here. We're going to add a third voice uh, in our next podcast. So, Dr. John Wolf. That sounds great. So, folks, be uh, on the lookout for it. And um, that's going to be all for us for this episode. And Jim, look forward to talking to you about a lot of these issues in the future. <laughs>